Hey, CSF, welcome to Acts chapter 22. Uh, in fact, I'm going to bump backwards into 21 and then catch us all the way up through the first half of chapter 23. So it's a long storytelling chunk of scripture tonight. So we start in uh, chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some of the Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized Paul shouting, fellow Israelite, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, against our law, and against this place. Remember, they're standing in the temple. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. It's ironic that this fellow, Paul, is the one who is defiling the temple because Bill left us right before spring break with Paul shaving his head, my man. And so the idea on that was Paul was willingly undergoing purification so he wouldn't defile the temple. This is a real similar case that we saw way back in Acts chapter 6 whenever people were being stirred up and speaking against Stephen. They said Stephen uh, was someone who was speaking against the holy place and against the law. And out of this, the entire worshiping uh, body of people got whipped into a frenzy. I'll show you more about that in a little bit. The whole city was aroused. Yeah, baby, yeah. And the people came in all directions. Seizing Paul, they drag him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. Remember, everything's better with sound effects. While they were trying to kill Paul, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. The Roman officer at once took soldiers and officers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander comes up, arrests Paul, and orders him bound with two chains. This is my passion, school of hard knocks. I took night classes. Keep moving. The commander could not get at the truth because of the noise of the entire crowd. He orders Paul to be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reaches the step, guys, get this, verse 35, the violence of the mob was so great that Paul had to be picked up and carried by the soldiers. About that time, Paul looks at the Roman commanders and says, can I say something to you? Immediately, the Roman commander's head snaps around and he says, wait a minute, you speak Greek. Aren't you, I love verse 38, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? Talk about mistaken identity. This Claudius, the Roman officer, thinks that Paul was an Egyptian terrorist. 
might be the haircut. He's referencing a story that we know from Josephus. There was an Egyptian false prophet who about three years before this time had gotten men together, taken them up to the Mount of Olives and looked across at the temple of Jerusalem. He promised that the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command and the terrorists would be able to break into the city and over throw Rome. Now, Rome caught wind of this, of course, and they smashed that revolt quickly. Except for the Egyptian revolt leader. And the commander now thinks that is Paul coming to light again. But verse 39, Paul has to answer him. He says, I am a Jew from Tarshish in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. He receives the Roman officer's permission and he stands on the steps and motions to the crowd. When they fall silent, he switches his language and he speaks from Greek into Aramaic. And he says, brothers and fathers, this is chapter 22, verse one, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When the people heard him speaking in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And I'm going to read Paul's defense of himself. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this very city. I stuttered under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law by our ancestors. And I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted followers of the way to their death. Remember, that was the name that the early Christians gathered under and were called by people of the way. And I put them, both men and women, into prison. Verse five, as the high priest and all the councils themselves can testify. We'll get to that in just a second. I even obtained letters from the Sanhedrin and their associates in Damascus. And I went to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, Paul's going to switch into the story of how he uh, converted and understood who Jesus was for the first time. All of that they could align with, and he said, it's historical fact. Verse 6, he jumps over. About noon, I came near Damascus, and suddenly, ooh, better with sound effects, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light. So all of a sudden, there's a secondary witness to the action that's happening. Up until this point, there's been um, the people who are present that could attest to it. Then Paul shifts into his own testimony, and now he's referencing a secondary witness. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus and because of the brilliance of light have blinded me. Again, a verifiable. Verifiable act. A man named Ananias came to see me, our third witness. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. I love the way Paul crafts his story here. He, meaning Ananias, stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that moment, 
I was able to verifiable fact. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. I need you to hear that verse because it's gonna show up at the very end of today's uh, lesson in chapter 23. The God of our ancestors has chosen you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses to all people of what you've seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Just time out. Real quick doctrinal statement there, right? Be baptized and wash your sin away because of the baptism? No, by calling on Jesus' name. What are you waiting for? Verse 17 continues, we're about done. I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple. I fell into a trance and the Lord began speaking to me. Quick, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Who is Jesus talking about? The exact same people who now 15, 16, 17 years later are yelling at Paul again. Verse 19, Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. He's pleading his case to Jesus saying, these people know me, they'll listen to me. Verse 20, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, there we go, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him, chapter six and chapter seven of Acts. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the point in the story where we know that Paul has been on three different missionary journeys. We've tracked through them all the way up until this point. And I love what Paul's doing. He's making his defense. And it sounds a little strange to me. Christian okay. apologists as if to do what you do, you have to either apologize for something or feel guilty about it or something like that. Can you tell me about the phrase Christian yeah, apologist? Yeah, it's one of those words that have evolved over the last few years and contoured with different meanings now, David. But it has a rich history when it goes back to the likes of Justin Martyr and Augustine and so on. Apologetics was part of the curriculum and the discipline of theological philosophical training. It comes from the Greek word actually to give an answer. The Apostle Peter says, for example, set apart Christ in your hearts as Lord and always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you and to do it with gentleness and respect. So this is an ordinary fisherman talking about how to answer people with gentleness and respect. So the word really means to give an answer. I think it has two, two senses making your truth claims clear and giving the answer to the legitimate questioner. His apologia with sensitivity and appropriateness. He talks of brothers and fathers. He talks about the testimony that they could verify and know for themselves. And I love it that it's specialized to his listeners in Jerusalem. Their angry complaint, remember what it was, is that he taught everybody everywhere against the people, against the law, against the temple. But he's stressing his loyalty to his origin, his Jewishness, and his Jewish faith. He even name drops Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the most eminent teacher of that time and the leader of the school of Hillel. Paul says, I've been 
Gamaliel's disciple. I know the law better than any of you guys. I love a good name drop reference. So his Jewishness is incontrovertible. He calls himself, I was a Hebrew of all Hebrews later on in one of his letters. And here's the thing. He says, not only was I raised in this tradition, but my zeal far surpasses you guys trying to beat up me, a fellow Jew. No way. I went after the way. You did there. I pursued people who followed this, this Christ figure, this Jesus of Nazareth. I would beat them and imprison them and even put them to death. And you, Sanhedrin, can testify to this. Here we go, the big ending. He talks about his conversion. And Paul says, listen, this was completely divine. I was on my way to do harm and a light came. Remember that sound effect? Exactly. And here's what happens. He says, I can take no credit of my own at all for what happened to me on the road. I was blind. I had to be led by hand into Damascus. And the person who talked to me was, name drop, Jesus of Nazareth. Then he goes and says, Ananias, you remember that guy? He restored my sight. Then he says, I went to the temple, the one that I'm supposedly have been defiling this whole time. He says, I went into the temple and there the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, he spoke to me. And in spite of my reluctance, he says, I will send you away and make you an apostle to the Gentiles. I love it because if you're tracking along, you know that Paul was an apostle for the Sanhedrin. It's someone who is under authority of a different higher power. And as soon as he gets to that point, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was interrupted by the crowd. They found their voice again. They had been listening up to this entire point. They began to demand his death. Listen to verse 22, chapter 22, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raise their voices, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. The question is why? The Gentiles could proselytize. That means they could undergo circumcision. You remember the sound effects from Bill's sermon right before spring break. If not, go see the podcast. Somebody yelled out and made the motion. But here's what we've got. Jesus himself was going to make Gentiles into Christians without first making them Jews. This was, this was incredible. What Paul is saying through a different higher authority, Jesus, is that Jews and Gentiles were equal. They would be on the same playing field. And so naturally, this started an entire sandstorm. wondering why I said that. Well, 
because I didn't think that anyone would catch my P.D. Pablo reference. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the crowd was not content just to shout and scream. They now began to wave it about their heads like a helicopter and throw dust into the air. Have you ever been so mad that you had to invent ways to express your anger? Yeah, that's exactly what's happening right here. The horror of Paul's blasphemy was causing an invention of electronic dance music. Verse 24 says this, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks second time. He directed that Paul be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Everybody was into dubstep, I guess, and that was too much for the Roman commanders. It's kind of weird that he uses flogging, what you and I would call torture, to extract information from a prisoner. You might have heard the idea of flogging or scourging. It's a leather thong weighted with metal or bone at the ends and whipped down. Uh, Somebody had that happen to him around Easter time. You can do the research. Verse 25, as they stretched out Stretched him out to flog him. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you, catch this, to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? I thought about that. What is the tone of how Paul would ask that question? And a secondary question is, isn't this peculiar timing? I mean, why hasn't Paul, who's now been in jail for the second time, why hasn't he said this earlier? He literally is being prepared for flogging before he tells that he is also a Roman. This is so weird. Verse 26 tells us more about this. The centurion heard this, went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander goes to Paul and says, tell me, are you? Yes, I am, answers Paul. The commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. It tells us that he is not a person of origin. He is not a true Roman by birth. In fact, he was a different nationality that then served in the Roman army that had to get spoils from all the war to then purchase his right to become a citizen in the kingdom of Rome. I love the twist and spit on the head as we understand the kingdom of God. Here's what Paul says. I was born a citizen. I'm one naturally born. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. <clears throat> and those who were about to interrogate him, verse 29, withdrew immediately 
the commander, wanted to find out exactly what was up with Paul being accused by the Jews. And so the next day, he released Paul and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and made him stand before them. And Paul looks at the Sanhedrin. I love this because Paul's about to give a secondary defense. The first time was to all the Jewish people. And now he is going to give a defense to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And he's going to do something very very purposeful. Before he talked about his origin and his nationality and the way he was raised from birth, he gave a testimony. Now his testimony is going to pivot. It's going to be based on something completely different than the time before. He says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at that, verse two of chapter 23, the high priest ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. <laughs> Better with sound effects. Why? Because Ananias understood Paul's words, his claim that although he was a Christian, he was also a good Jew. I love this because Paul has no problem living congruently as both a person who understands the heritage of Judaism plus the clarity and the messianic prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. There was no tension in Paul, but to Ananias' ears, blasphemy. And Paul says, God would strike you, you unwashed, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, which Paul knows well, and yet you yourself violate it by commanding that I be struck. Now those standing near Paul, here comes a little twist, a little learning for us. Those standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? That was a positional authority as a member of the Sanhedrin. Again, I'm touching on something that Bill had already said in the week before spring break. Paul re replies, brothers, I didn't realize that he was a high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Okay, so here's what's happening. Although Paul knows that this leader of the Sanhedrin, Ananias, is saying something contradictory to the, to the law. He says, I am willingly putting myself under. Paul seeks to apologize to the person who is slapping him in the face, the, the utmost sign of disrespect in front of all the rest of the Pharisees and Sanhedrin. Paul is willingly placing himself under that authority. We call that word submitting, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. Paul's getting ready to divide the room. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. This is a divided room because of doctrine. See, resurrection, as you and I know as Christians, is fundamental to Christianity. Jesus came as the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross, and then he died and rose again after three days. It's resurrection. And then he ascended to sit by God the Father, taking his rightful place. And what he then says is to his followers, I will give you my spirit. The same spirit raised Jesus from the dead is now available to you and I. That is the hope of the gospel done through the work of Jesus. <clears throat> but here's the thing. 
The Sadducees are listening to this and they are saying, that is a fundamental doctrine for us too. We are anti-supernaturalist. Their belief structure, the Sadducees listening, is incompatible with the gospel. And then verse 7 gets us almost to our end. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up, and they argued vigorously for Paul. What a twist. These were guys on one side of the room who were ready to tear Paul apart, and instead now they're flipping, they're speaking up for him. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Here comes verse 10. This triggered so much violence in the Sanhedrin, the commander had to come for the third time and rescue Paul. They said he was worried that Paul would be torn to pieces. He ordered his troops to go down, take Paul away by force, using that same verb for the third time, and bring him to the barracks. Now, we're going to close with verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus came and stood bodily near Paul. And did you catch why? Because Paul is a man full of discouragement and doubt. Like Jesus comes with a, with an, with a message for Paul, in these past few days for Paul, they have been incredible. He's been thrown into prison now for the third night. You guys might feel this way about wherever you are in the world. Feel discouragement and doubt at the reality of the weight of the virus and what that's doing in your personal life, what that's doing in your vocational life, what that's doing in your community where you're disconnected. Did you catch Jesus' message. Take courage. So let me close with this. Number one, you need to do it now. It's presence. The same presence that Paul needed with Jesus standing beside him in jail for the third night. The same presence is here for you. In the face of your discouragement, in the face of your doubt, in the face of whatever hardship is in front of you, you have to decide to take courage. And guys, you've got to hear it from the mouth of Jesus himself. This is a direct command. This is an imperative. He's not asking you to do it. Jesus is telling you to do it. Guys, this is the only time that Luke says, take courage, either in his gospel or the book of Acts. And so you know it's an eyewitness testimony from Paul that Jesus stood with him in a moment of doubt, in a moment of fear, and told him to stand tall and take courage. Now, the thing that you and I don't have is the bodily presence of Jesus beside us, but we have something even greater. We have the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, living inside us. And that's why Jesus can say with truthfulness that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, Jesus, am here with you, and it is the hope of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we stand on your word. We pray for peace and healing throughout the world right now and that your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen.